0: Welcome to the Living Godcast. Our prayer is that this message speaks to you, impacts you, and inspires you. Please enjoy today's message, and we invite you to contact us if you need prayer, appreciate this word, or would like more information on Church of the Living God. Be blessed today. If you uh, remember from last week, we set up our series by laying the foundation of Christ's deity. I I felt like it was important before we got to his person to start with his deity, all right? Divinity is what that word means. So what makes him God? And if we start there, then we uh, can hopefully undermine our own tendency to look toward God's power and his hand more than his person, all right? It is... Uh, far more natural for us to see the workings of God and the power of God and seek those things and not necessarily seek him first, right? Jesus said if we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to us. What we often do naturally, because we are human people and he knows it, is that we tend to seek all these things and then we expect God to add to us anyway before we seek the kingdom first and, and the king of the kingdom first. So I want to try to undermine that tendency. Even in Pentecostal church, we, we love the power of the Lord, the moving of the Lord, and it's very easy for us to fall into a mindset that says if we don't see the power of God demonstrated by people laying in the floor or shouting or speaking in tongues, then we didn't see God today. And that's, that's an incredibly um, short-sighted perspective. Because there is more to God than just what he does. He is a person. He is an individual. He has thoughts and feelings. He has character. And so because of that, all of the things that he does are influenced by his character. Just like with us, Proverbs says that all of the issues of life flow out of our hearts, right? That's a principle, It's a principle. God is the same way. Everything that God does flows from within him. It starts within him and then it manifests itself outwardly. Now, I love it when God shows his power. I love it when people are are weeping and when God's just moving on hearts. I love it. Uh, But if we make that our focus, then that's all we'll chase. And that'll be the focus. And when when that doesn't happen, then God didn't show up. Somebody got saved, but nobody ran around the room, so it wasn't good service. You know, And nobody said that, but I don't want us to even get there, amen? So we're going to try to, try to uh, we tried last week to establish the deity of Christ. Yes, he is divine. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is all these amazing things. Um, in Jesus dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, it says in Colossians 2.9. The fullness being the substance that fills God. All that makes God, God-filled Jesus, right? 78 times in the Gospels, Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one who appeared with the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days and was given by the Ancient of Days a kingdom and a dominion that would never end. This Son of Man in the eyes of the Jews was going to show up in political power and military might, elevating Israel, destroying their enemies. Uh, yet, they, uh, because they only expected him to show up this way when Jesus did show up, challenging their sin in their hearts, they could not see him as the Son of Man. From Daniel 7. This is what I'm talking about. They had developed an expectation of the way that the Son of Man would show up. And then when he actually did, because he did not fit their expectation, they missed the season of their visitation. Amen. If the Jews can do that, the chosen people of God. Don't you think we can do that? Don't you think we can be among those who seek his hand first and miss what he's doing in the hearts and minds of people? Absolutely. So we have to guard ourselves against that. And this is the this is the point of the series. We run that same risk of looking for God's power in hand only to miss his person fully expressed in Jesus. So this week I want to get into what I think is one of the most defining characteristics of Jesus, and that is that Jesus was a man of purpose first. Jesus was a man of purpose first. He did not do anything by accident. He did not do anything haphazardly. He was deliberate. He was intentional. He did it at the um, appointing of his Father in heaven. And he, he chose purpose over everything else. Um, I, my first uh, section here says purpose over popularity. In John chapter 4 uh, is where we're going to be. John chapter 4, we're going to hang out there and probably read through verse 26 if we get to it. All right. At this point in Jesus' life, he has been baptized by John the Baptist The Holy Spirit has descended and rested upon him. He has then been led into the wilderness by the same Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil, and he overcame. He has met his first disciples and given them a taste of the ministry. He's not yet called them to follow him, necessarily, in the formal, you know, drop your nets and follow me kind of scenario that we always picture. Uh, He has met uh, Andrew and his brother Peter and Nathaniel and Philip at this point. A couple of those guys had previously been following John. Um, and they have begun ministering in Judea. So Judea being the central area in Israel where Jerusalem is. It, it was named Judea by the Romans when they occupied it in the early uh, early centuries B.C. So the, they are in Judea, they're ministering and they're baptizing. Jesus has also already had uh, his encounter with Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel. You know, Nicodemus came to him by night, and this is the whole dialogue in John 3 about uh, being born again. In John 4, Jesus' popularity is rising over that of his cousin John and is beginning to catch the attention of the religious system. So in John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, So then, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. Uh, We do not know how Jesus knew that his popularity was surpassing John's and gaining the attention of the Pharisees. We just know that he knew it could have been prophetic it could have been a, a revelation of god you know maybe the lord revealed the the secret conversations or intents of the heart of the pharisees to jesus certainly it could have been far more uh, conventional knowledge maybe people were talking and as people do you know when a revival stirs up or when god starts moving people start talking People start talking and they start flocking. That's what they tend to do, right? They talk and they flock. And that's, where they, that's that could be what's happening. Obviously, in that time, there were a lot of people in that area. And to see the masses going toward a certain individual, it didn't take a prophet to figure out what was going on. Uh, but Jesus does, in response, make an unconventional decision. He does what most ministers would not do. Okay, His popularity is gaining, his platform is growing, his influence is swelling in the area, and he does what most people would not do, certainly what the marketing department wouldn't want you to do, and that is he leaves. He leaves. He's in an area where he's becoming known. He's in an area where he's becoming more known than others. His platform is growing. His voice is being heard. People are coming to him. And the disciples are being baptized, or or the disciples are baptizing in his name. And he decides, all right, time to pack up shop. Time to go. Shut the ministry down. We're leaving Judea. That's huge. That is not what most people would do. Right? That is not what most people would do. He left Judea. His decision was to leave the area at the height of his popularity. uh, He's committing marketing and ministry suicide. Even in the ministry, conventional wisdom would dictate that you ride the wave of popularity for the sake of the message, air quotes, and gain your platform for the kingdom. That sounds like a really jaded perspective, doesn't it? Listen, I've been in church my whole life, man. I have seen it all. I've seen the business cards and the websites and the the social media stuff. And, you know, it gets old doesn't it? It gets old. And I'm not saying you shouldn't put out what God is doing. You certainly should put out what God is doing. I think that's one of, the, one of the most exciting things I look forward to every Sunday is when we get to post on Facebook about who came to Jesus. I love that. I think that's awesome because that tells our community that Jesus is doing something, that he's showing up and people are being impacted. That's awesome. But it's a very fine line between talking about what Jesus is doing and growing the kingdom and growing your kingdom. Amen? And it happens all the time. And it's easy to point to the big guys and make fun of them or or draw ire on them, but it happens here. Small town Winchester. Right? And and I'm not saying that these folks that have a good social media presence are doing it for these reasons. What I'm saying is man's uh, conventional means of promoting ministry has infiltrated the ministry to the point where it has tainted a lot of it. It really has. And so, um, you know, when we're we're putting up on Facebook what God's telling us because we want people to know God's talking to us more than what God is doing, right? I saw a guy a few years ago. I'm going to get real practical so you guys understand. A guy in our area, not in Winchester, but in our area, he, he put out a, a video of the Lord telling him to give a lady in the church 500 bucks. She had some financial needs and all that. Nothing wrong with that right? That's one of the functions of the body of Christ, is to help each other out when we need it, okay? But it was an altar, it was an at-the-altar word of knowledge kind of thing. And then he tells somebody, hey, go to the office right now, get 500 bucks out of the safe, we're going to give it to her. And then he puts it all over Facebook. Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's what Jesus said, right? And, and it's amazing. It's, there is nothing wrong with God wanting to meet that lady's need. There is nothing wrong with that church being able to meet that need. But it is not the business of everybody, much less to be used as a promotional tool to show that God's talking to me. See, God's talking to me, and we're meeting needs because God's talking to me. No, God's meeting needs because he cares about her. Buddy, you're just a microphone. That's all you are. You're the guy who can sign the check. That's it. So you see the difference? You see that line. You know, and, and so I don't, I don't want to just condemn people. I'm not trying to condemn. I'm, what I'm trying to do is draw that line of demarcation so that we understand uh, just how significant it was that Jesus did what he did. This points us to his character. This tells us the kind of man he was, the kind of man that God sent to the world. He did not send a promoter. He did not send a, a, a man who was seeking platform. And look what happened as a result. The single most influential human being to ever live. And he did it all by not trying to become the single most influential human being who ever lived. Isn't that fascinating? His character says, okay, this is not the right time. This is not, this is not good. Maybe he was even saying, maybe I can't handle it. I mean, I know he was Jesus. I know he was God. But he was still man too. 100% man. So maybe he was willing to recognize that, hey, if this happens right now, this may not be good for me or for the kingdom or for the mission. And what responsibility to take and to say, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to shut it down and I'm going to leave. Jesus did not ride the wave of popularity for the message, the sake of the message, nor did he gain his platform for the kingdom, right? Right? Jesus left and went back into the one area he knew would show him the least honor, home. Think about it. Jesus is the one that said prophets are shown honor everywhere except in their home country, their home area. And that is the place Jesus went to. What does this tell us about him? What does this show us? His desire to be humble, his desire to be submitted, his desire to just do what the Father wants him to do, to just live his purpose, no matter who knows him. How would ministry in America change if people did that? It would change a lot. It would change a lot of things. We want people to know what God is doing, but it's so easy to tack on our our identity as well and our name to it. So he went to the one place where he would be shown the least honor. Uh, We could look at this decision in the scope of the timeline of his ministry and reckon that uh, perhaps he knew it was not yet time to gain that kind of platform. Maybe it was just practical. It was like, hey, you know, I'll be at the cross next month if I do this now. Maybe that's what it was. Certainly possible. Maybe he was aware that it could accelerate the crucifixion and cause it at the wrong time. Regardless, a key part of Jesus' character is revealed in this short passage. Jesus forsakes the notoriety and platform offered by men and the masses for the sake of his God-ordained purpose in the earth. What a lesson for us! And you know, if you're not in ministry, it's probably not. It may not be as huge a lesson, but I mean, I mean, good Lord, now you got Facebook prophets and Instagram, you know, (laughs) prophets and all these different things. You got people all over the place, not under submission, not under covering anywhere, and they're they're ministering to people and proclaiming what says the Lord. You know, Uh, but Jesus forsakes all that notoriety and platform that men are willing to give him. People are willing to give it. And Jesus says, No, it's time to go. I'm out. And he shuts it down. Jesus humbled himself to the timing of his father's plan. Again, think of this in terms of character. He humbled himself to the timing of his father's plan. He left because his father told him to, apparently, or he wouldn't have done it, right? How often did he say, I only do what the father tells me to do? So the father tells him to go, and he doesn't fight it, and he goes. He humbles himself. He submits, and he leaves. He forsook his following so that he could be a faithful son to his father. It was more important to Jesus that his father be pleased with him than that people be pleased with him. That truth alone could revolutionize our walk with the Lord, ministry or not. If our focus is just that our Father in heaven is pleased with us. I heard somebody say recently, uh, that they were challenged, it was, I think it was a ministry person, but I just kind of saw it in passing on social media. And the guy said, uh, he was challenged with this saying, if, it, if everything was taken away and it's just you, your Bible, and Jesus, is that enough? And it should be. Certainly it should be. And for Jesus it was. It was him and his Father. And that's all he needed. That's all he was concerned about. What a beautiful example for us. What a beautiful example that would cause us to say, you know what, regardless of what they think, what does my father think? Regardless of what you guys think, I love you guys, I think you guys are awesome people, but it should matter more to me what he thinks about me than what you think about me. It should matter more to you what he thinks about you than what I think about you. Jesus displays this, and this is in the very earliest part of his his time of influence in his ministry in the earth, a huge, huge character trait that so many folks miss out on. And, and again, when we fall into that pattern of seeking the stuff, then we won't be satisfied with just whether or not the Father loves us, whether or not the Father's talking to us. Well, he's not giving me my open door yet. He's not made a way for this or that yet, or he's not provided this or that for us yet, or or whatever it is that we're seeking. Jesus would not trade his purpose for anything that anyone could give him. It was so about his his father's purpose in his life, nothing else mattered. I, I, I know I keep kind of saying it over and over again, but I'm trying to get this through. It was so about the purpose of the father, nothing else mattered to him. He was a man of purpose first. He was willing to humble himself to the purpose. If the purpose says that you are unknown, except only to the Father, is that enough? If the purpose says that that answer doesn't come in the way that you want, will you still trust that the Father's doing something? Jesus was that kind of a man. He had that kind of character about him. That's why he couldn't be bought or swayed. That's why he couldn't be corrupted and led into traps of the enemy, because this stuff was already settled in him. He had determined from the word go that he was going to remain submitted. And if the father said leave, he was going to leave. If the father said do anything, he was going to do it over what man could do. All right, that was purpose over over popularity. Um, The next section, beginning in verse 4 of John chapter 4. I called this section "Purpose Over Prejudice" just because of the nature of the story. There's really more going on than prejudice here, but it was, you know, alliteration—the p noise, the p sounds, right? So it made sense. Um, all right, John four verse four says, uh, in the NASB, it says, "And he had to pass through Samaria." In the King James, it says, "And he must needs go through Samaria." In the New King James, it says, "But he needed to go through Samaria." So. Jesus is tying now on his exit out, of, uh, exit, exit out of Judea. I tried to merge exit and exodus. On his exit out of Judea, he has determined that part of the reason why he needs to go is that he needs to go through Samaria. Now, if you're looking at the geography of, of Israel at that time, Judea is the central and southern part, uh, what used to be Judah. Okay, Jerusalem is, where, is in right in the middle there. And just to the north and kind of west of Israel, of, of Judea, is an area called Samaria. In the times of the northern kingdom, uh, in the Old Testament, that the northern kingdom was the worst of the two kingdoms, all right? Um, so background, David unites the kingdom. David and Solomon reign over a united Israel. Solomon fails at the end of his life, and God prophesies the kingdom would be split. The southern kingdom goes to one son, the northern kingdom goes to the other. The southern kingdom remains the better of the two kingdoms. It's not perfect by any means, but they have more good kings. The northern kingdom is almost all bad kings. Ahab and his his descendants, who repeatedly did worse than their father before them, it says, over and over again. So um, Samaria was in that northern area. Samaria at one time was the capital of the northern kingdom. I think under Ahab, actually, is where, when it was. Uh, so Samaria, there's, there's a whole big deal with Samaria. Jesus decides to get to Galilee. He did not have to go through, but he chose to. He needed to because there was purpose at working in Samaria. All right, There was purpose. So he's going through Samaria. It says in verse 5, he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Verse 9, so the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, I know you've been in church, you've heard this. We understand the significance of, uh, for example, the parable of the good Samaritan, how that The Jewish man was attacked by thieves, and three pious Jewish leaders passed him by, and it was a dirty, stinking Samaritan that helped him out. And we understand the the significance of that. You've heard this story of the woman at the well. You know uh, the story. But the background around the schism between the Jews and the Samaritans, you may not know, the historical side. Maybe you do. Um, So as I said, you had those two kingdoms prior to the Babylonian exile, At the time of the captivity, when many of the devout Jewish leaders uh, were exiled to Babylon, along with many thousands of Israelites, the remaining Jewish population in Israel fell under the influence of foreign powers and surrounding Canaanites. So one of the uh, political moves that Babylon did at the time of the captivity is they pulled out all of the uh, established Jewish leaders, the nobility, so to speak. They pulled all of them out and sent them to Babylon. They gave them new names, Babylonian names, often named after Babylonian gods. Uh, for example, Daniel's uh, Babylonian name, Belshazzar, was the name of a Babylonian deity. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same deal. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. That's That was their Jewish names. They were given these Babylonian names. They were forced to learn the Babylonian language and customs. So they, they did a, it wasn't just a cultural appropriation, it was a cultural mutilation, they destroyed the culture of the Israelites, and they overlaid their own culture onto the ones that were taken. The ones that were left, they sent people back to Israel that were Babylonian. They sent foreigners back in to manage everything, to govern it. And they did that so that it would destabilize the region, so that they could not unite and revolt. The Romans did it, the Greeks did it, everybody did it. It's a pretty, pretty classic military move. As a result, the Jews that remained in Israel at the time, those Jews intermarried and combined their culture, their bloodlines, and their religious beliefs with those of the foreigners. Now, that's good for Babylon, but it's bad for Israel. All right? At the end of the captivity, when Nehemiah and Zerubbabel returned to rebuild Jerusalem in the temple, they were met by these Jews. Uh, You remember in the story, Sanballat and Tobiah, these were some of these Jews, air quotes, Jews. Um, And, let's see, yeah, they were met by some of these Jews whose physical heritage and religious beliefs were greatly diluted by foreign influences. So Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and the, the Jews that returned, they didn't want anything to do with these guys. Now, to be fair, they were kind of jerks. Sanballat and Tobiah were not the nicest people to deal with. They repeatedly went around Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. They wrote to King Cyrus. They did everything they could to undermine them politically what they were trying to do. They were trying to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city walls, and make Jerusalem a homeland again for the Jews. That's what they were trying to do. Sanballat and Tobiah, they didn't like that because it threatened the system that had developed in the place of that Jewish occupation. Right, That Jewish occupation. That's terrible. That Jewish... uh, uh, Residency. We'll go with that. So, this is the situation they come back to. Uh, In the process of that, they have merged these religious beliefs, and the priesthood has become mingled. They're they're married to women they shouldn't be marrying, they're doing rites and rituals they shouldn't be doing. They don't know the law, they don't know the law of Moses. They can't speak the language anymore. Uh, And the same with the Babylonian Jews as well. So it's a mess. It's a huge mess. In the end, a schism happens. The Samaritans wanted to join in the rebuilding process, but were rejected by Nehemiah because of their mixed heritage. And they had developed what's called a syncretistic religious system. Syncretistic. I didn't know what it was either. I'm not trying to be smart. I had to look it up. Here's what it means. Syncretistic means that you have merged multiple religious systems. You have taken what were fundamentals of each and merged them into one and watered them down. And what results is a religion that is far more open to other faiths as well. So because they've been merged together, everything is watered down. So then you're, you're left with a system that accepts many more roads, many more ways to please God that aren't exactly biblical, okay? That happens. Man, you could call American Christianity that to some degree. Um, so syncretism has, de- has developed in its place. Is this boring? All right, I think it's interesting. If it's, if it's boring, somebody just wave at me and I'll, I'll hustle, all right? So the result was often a more inclusive approach to other faiths. The returning Jews saw this as heretical, And these Jews were ultimately excommunicated from the proper Jewish faith. So the Samaritans, the remaining Canaanite mixture Jews, they are genetically, they're Jews, mostly. They've got some Canaanite blood in them and all that stuff. But genetically, they're more closely related to the Jews than anybody else. But because of the religious dilution, the Jews that came back, of course, under the direction of the Lord to reinstate everything that God intended, they're like, hey, we don't want anything to do with this. You guys, you're not part of our system. You're not welcome. Your priesthood is invalid. Your, your rituals are invalid. Get out. Pretty harsh response. But it was at the direction of the Lord. So, you can't really argue with it. That's I mean, what the Lord wanted. He was trying to reinstate his, his word and his system. So, the Samaritans then moved their syncretistic sect of Judaism to Samaria, and centered it around Mount Gerizim. So you had the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where the temple was. You had all that uh, that was the center of Jewish religion for you know, 2,000 years. Then the Samaritan Schism happens and they take all that. They move their system north to Samaria. They find their own mountain. They set up their own rival temple. Which, you know, hey, that still happens today, by the way. There's rival temples all over the place. Not just to the Jews, I'm talking about in churches. It's, we can 't stay together long enough to make an impact in the kingdom before we split off and try to make our own little kingdom. You know how many churches have started from other churches in the last thirty years that i 've been here? Oh, you know how many churches have come out of this church? Several. Several. yeah i 've asked my dad many times. you think the, the vision of the wagon wheel and planting churches, do you think that was a warning? <laughs> i 've asked him, seriously, maybe it was a warning, more than just a mission. This is what's going to happen. People are going to do this thing. Me and Brandon have come up with a term for it. What did we call it the other day? Judas something? Oh, I shouldn't have said anything. I'm sorry. It was clever. It was clever. But it's a three to five year cycle. Anyway, I wish I was joking, but it's real. It's true. The point is that mindset has pervaded the world a long time. If it was happening, you know, 3,000 years ago with the Jews, and it still happens today in Winchester, it's something that's counter to the kingdom. That's the point. Now, all this is important because this sets up the foundation for why Jesus is in Samaria. He's come to Samaria, and these are the people he's dealing with. By the time of Christ, they've set up their own priesthood. They've set up their own temple. The schism has blossomed into full-blown prejudice and borderline racism. Um, genetically, even though they were pretty much the same, ideologically and religiously, their differences were vast. And so it was obvious when Jesus shows up sitting by the well of Jacob, it was obvious to the Samaritan woman who he was, and it was obvious to her who she was. There was no question that he was a Jew and that she was not. And this is the scenario that Jesus had to walk into. This is what's interesting to me. Again, back to purpose purpose over everything else. Jesus was so into his purpose that he was willing to go into a very potentially uncomfortable and unsafe situation. He really really was putting his own safety on the line. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? The observations made by the Samaritan woman at the well are purely informed by the schism and the prejudices. She identifies Jesus immediately as a male Jew and asserts that he should not be speaking to her. So there's barriers that are already being thrown up in this situation. But Jesus needed to go here. The barriers of religion, the barriers of geography, the barriers of gender. Why In that time, it was very uncommon for a man to speak to a woman who was not being chaperoned by her husband or somebody in the family. Parts of the world still operate that way. Um, and yet, she's like, hey, you're Jewish. You're a man. You're in Samaria, talking to a Samaritan, who is a woman. Why? All the rules, exactly, are being broken. And and her observations are legit. It's not that she's, she's necessarily being mean, uh, but she's just being informed by her situation. Jesus replies to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is Who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, she said to him, sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? How do you plan to get that? What living water? All water to them is living, by the way, because in an arid place, any water brings life. Jesus is speaking of something spiritual that he has come to give freely while she is stuck on something physical. Jesus is saying that he has something life-giving in him as life-giving as water in a desert. The woman goes on to say in verse 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. She draws the line deeper in the sand along the lines of the schism, claiming Jacob as her own heritage, not just his. That's a big deal to a Jew. That was a big deal. Jacob dug the well, his sons and their cattle drank from it, but Jesus himself, he is saying, I am a well. I am a well. I have something life-giving in me. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus further qualifies what is this water that he supplies water that quenches thirst, water that supplies the partaker and transforms them into a well themselves, just like the source well. He's not saying, hey, you, you can just dip your bucket in and get what you need when you need. Now, we know that we can go to him when we need things. But he is saying that what's in him is big enough and strong enough and deep enough that it transforms the dry, dead, arid thing that it's been poured into and turns that dead thing into a well springing up of eternal life. That's what's in Jesus. And he is inviting her to have it in her. That's what he's doing. A Samaritan, a woman, and as we later learn, a woman with quite a reputation. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. It was purely physical. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. He said, you've said correctly, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you, you now have is not your husband. Uh, this which you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The most obvious statement in the whole Bible. Isn't it interesting, though? God uses the woman's reputation and story and he uses the thing that you would think would most close her off to open a door for the Messiah to come in. Isn't that fascinating? What does that reveal to us about the power of the kingdom and the message of the gospel? It means that God can take the mess that people have found themselves in and he can reveal something to us about it and open a door so that he can come in and bring change and transformation. It's incredible. It's incredible. You would think that would be the one thing you would want to stay away from when you're talking to the woman who's had five husbands and is living with a six man. Now, again, we don't know, and I'm sure you've heard this your whole life, we don't know what the situation was to go through five men. That, that would be pretty scandalous even nowadays. Uh, I'm sure there was some mixture of abuse and death and rejection and abandonment and adultery. Who knows? Who knows? With five people, I'm sure there's a variety of things that could have happened. But we know that by the time she gets to the sixth guy, she's not ready to do anything committed. She's just using him to survive. And who can blame her? Look what's happened to her. Who could blame her? But Jesus is not moved by what's happened to her. And in fact, he says, I know what happened, and I can do something about it. So it's a beautiful story. In the end... I'll skip. We we know how the story unfolds. He reveals himself, verse 26, I am he, the one who's speaking to you. Because she says, we know that the Messiah is coming, and he says, I am he. Jesus chooses for the first time publicly to reveal himself as the Messiah to this kind of person. Purpose over everything else in the life of Christ. Purpose. I must needs go through Samaria. In the end, Let's identify roadblocks in this woman's life that should have kept her from meeting Jesus. Number one, she was a Samaritan. She was a heretic. She was a member of a cult in the eyes of the Jews. And that cult had misconceptions about God and the Messiah. And she was one of them. Number two, she was a woman with a reputation. One so well-known that other women wanted nothing to do with her. Implies there could be some adultery in that situation, right? Number three, she was probably wounded, probably abused, rejected, maybe even adulterous. Number four, she was living in a scandalous situation at the time with a man that she was not married to. Number five, she was defensive and she was offensive, challenging Jesus, his heritage, his faith, all of it. This does not sound like somebody you want to meet on your street evangelism thing, does it? And yet this is the one that Jesus came for. His purpose was so great and so important to him, he was willing to put himself in this situation with this kind of person. That's incredible. And what does that tell us about what we ought to be doing? That's right. Now, God led him into this. That's right. I don't think it means you walk, you walk up to the most rough and tumble person you see and just assume God's given you permission to start witnessing. I mean, you want to roll the dice on it, go for it. But if the Lord tells you to do it, you better do it. Right? If he tells you to... Knock, knock yourself out. In response, Jesus was purpose-driven. He had to go through Samaria. He was sacrificial, willing to take her abrasiveness head-on and even risk his own safety. He was personally missional. He was willing to put in the intensely personal work to connect with her. That would be a very uncomfortable conversation, but he was willing to do it. He was spiritually gifted for the sake of one person. He was more worried about one person benefiting from his gift But he also understood that if the one could benefit, she could be the key to many. Your gift that God's put in you is great. That's awesome. But if you will use it properly on one person, maybe that one person can open up the door to many. Maybe you don't have to become an internet prophet. Amen? Become an individual prophet first. Number five, Jesus was engaging and compassionate, not condemning her when he could have. Only man to ever walk the earth who had the right to condemn her. And he didn't. Nor did he lord his gifting over her. And lastly, Jesus was not afraid to acknowledge her misgivings. But he did not let them stop her from hearing the truth. He let her talk. And he corrected her at one point. He says, you guys don't even worship something. You guys don't understand what you're worshiping. He didn't mess around. He didn't mince words. He put her kind of in her place. Graciously and lovingly. Compassionately. In the end, Jesus revealed himself for the first time publicly as the Messiah to this woman despite all of her issues, flaws, and misconceptions. What a beautiful story of Jesus' willingness to overcome history, geography, social and religious schisms, personal failures, and defensive behavior. What a good God. Beyond that, what a man. What a cool guy. Right? And if he was that way then, can we not faithfully believe that he is that way now? He is still willing to go wherever and talk to whomever about whatever just to open a door. Amen? Cool, huh? Receive it? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for what you're revealing about yourself and your person. Lord, we ask you just to open us up over the next three weeks that remain and just reveal yourself plainly. God, challenge every misconception or preconceived idea that we have about you and God, just introduce or reintroduce yourself to us as the man that God sent to this earth to love the world and give himself for it. We thank you for it, Lord. Be in this place today. Save lost folks. Heal hurting people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening today to The Living God we trust and pray that you are blessed by today's word. If you would like to contact us for prayer or for more information about Church of the Living God, please visit our Facebook page at WinCityCOLG or give us a call at 859-745-1865.